Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Ian Abernethy Podcast. You can watch videos and listen to other podcast episodes by visiting www.ianabernethy.com. So, without further ado, here's Ian Abernethy. Hello, everybody. I'm Ian Abernethy, and welcome to this month's podcast, which is called Occam's Hurdled Gatana. And I'll tell you a little bit more about what that's all about uh, in a moment. Uh, the first bit of news is to let you know that the iTunes feed from the old blog has now been switched off. Uh, those who've been with us a while who'll remember that we used to uh, put the podcast out through the blog. And then, of course, we did the new website and we do the podcast through that now. So for a while, we had two feeds running side by side. The um, blog feed uh, was switched off uh, a week or so ago. So um, none of the new podcasts were on that feed anyway. So if you've been receiving the new podcasts, then uh, no problem. And obviously, if you came to the site looking to find your uh, your podcast because your iTunes feed had disappeared, then you've subscribed to the old one. If you just search for me and uh, resubscribe to the one that's there, you'll be you'll be fine. Um, the next bit of news is that the uh, Marshall Map uh, podcast or audiobook that we put out last week, uh, that proved very popular. So thank you to everyone for the feedback on on that. Uh, as part of that, you know, people have been asking about how you could learn more about the elements that uh, self-protection that kind of fall outside the way in which most modern martial arts are practiced. Uh, that obviously we discussed in depth in uh, in that audiobook. Uh, well, um, working with uh, Peter Constantine, we have a, a thing called the uh, the Combat Coach, which Peter started and I'm I'm involved with as well, uh, which covers all those different things. And I'll be giving details on that in a future newsletter uh, very soon. So if you're interested in how you can learn that, make it part of your teaching and get some uh, certification for the... Um, well, the, the the full package, really, the full self-protection package, as opposed to just the um, physical elements, you know, the whole lot, um, then keep an eye open for that. And if you're not a newsletter subscriber, you can just go to ianabernethy.com and subscribe there. Um, other bit of news is myself and Steve Williams are running um, an Extreme Impact uh, Instructors course uh, very soon. Uh, the details of that are on the uh, the website. That's going to run over three months. Um, and if you're interested in that, then be sure to, to check out the website. And, of course, all the details of that were in the uh, the newsletter. Uh, final bit of news is just to thank everybody for their support on Facebook and, and, and Twitter and social media, which obviously is you know, fairly new to, as, as, as you all know. Um, but the Facebook this week, we've gone uh, over 1,000 likes for the page, which is you know, a cracking start. Really happy with that. And I hope that everyone likes the stuff I'm putting up there. I try and get some information out on a, a more or less daily basis, you know, what I've been doing, what I've been teaching, uh, uh, links to interesting videos and and, and you know, web pages and things people might like. So I'm trying to provide a, a good service there. And I hope I'm managing that. And if you like what we're doing there, let us know. If there's anything you'd like to see more of or less of, let us know. So, um, yeah, you know, really pleased that uh, so far, at least, we seem to have got off to a really good uh, good start on that. So I'll just, as a little aside, if, what's important to me as well is that you, you always feel that you're getting good service from us you know that the podcast uh, the website the facebook feed the twitter feed as well of course that all these things are helping you and, and providing you with with good information um say the newsletters as well of course all of that of course we you know we, we do for, for free it's just our intention to kind of um spread what we do to, to help hopefully people um who like the way that we think uh, to make use of it um and you know i really appreciate all the support of that that kind of stuff 
Um, and of course, at some point, you know, we, we we do all this for free, but we need to make sure that we do at some point make some cash to, you know, fund all of this as well. So as usual, big thanks to all the people who, you know, organize the seminars, who attend the seminars, who buy the, you know, the books and the DVDs, because it's, it's your effort that um, and your support that, that keeps this whole thing uh, rolling. OK, so, so yeah, thought I'd quickly mention my thanks on that. OK, so that's enough of that. Um, this month's podcast. What we're going to be doing is looking at um, the three main groups of approaches to to, to Kata and the, the practical application, which we'll describe in the, the podcast, and take put aside like the practicality of them or the history of them, and just look at you know which one is is logically the best, all right? Uh, which one is logically the simplest and makes the least kind of assumptions? So we're going to do that using a, a tool called uh, Occam's Razor, um, which so I hope you enjoy that. And then following the, the the main part of the podcast, we're going to have a look at some listeners' questions, and so we've got some questions on um, you know weapons training and high kicking and. Um, the number of kata people should practice and that kind of stuff as well. So, as usual, it seems to have happened with the recent podcast. It's a little bit longer than I uh, originally envisioned, but uh, um, I hope that's okay with everybody. And uh, I know people like the kind of half-hour length one, so I'm trying to get down to that. It's just, you know, recently the, the topics we've been exploring um, need a full exploration, really. <laughs> so they've been a little bit uh, a bit longer. But I hope, you know, let me know. You know, if you're happy with this length, that, that, that's great too. Okay, so I'll uh, I'll shut up. I think that's enough to, to get started. And uh, here's the uh, the main topic, uh, the main part of this month's podcast, which is Occam's Hurdled Katana. In this podcast, I want to look at the logic for various approaches to katabunkai, or kata replication, with particular emphasis on Occam's razor. Before we get into what Occam's razor is, and its relevance to kata, I'd like to first uh, define the problem we'll be applying Occam's razor to. As all listeners will no doubt know, there are many approaches to kata replication, and many competing theories all claiming to be the right one. From my perspective, the right one will be the right one for their individual and their training goals. Not everyone practices the martial arts with a view to developing functional combative skill. Some practice the martial arts for aesthetic, um, artistic or cultural purposes, and hence the right one for them will be a value judgment. Now, I'm totally okay with people choosing an approach based on personal preference. However, when claims are made about functionality and which is the best approach from that perspective, the discussion moves away from personal opinion because what works best is what works best. Functionality is not in the eye of the beholder. So for me, and I'm sure most listening to this, while I see value in the artistic, aesthetic and cultural aspects of the martial arts, my overriding aim is to develop functional combative skills and to fully understand the kata from that perspective. The right approach for me is therefore the one that is most functional, and also the one that best explains the very nature and structure of kata. We can broadly split uh, competing kata explanations into three main groups. So firstly, we have the what-you-see-is-what-you-get view that's was standard from the 1940s onwards, but it's gone into serious decline over the last 15 or 20 years or so. So this is where the kata is viewed as being karate versus karate, kicks, punches and blocks. Um, and for ease of reference, we'll call this the block-kick-punch approach in this podcast. Uh, secondly, we have the it's-all-about-motion uh, view or approach. And this is where the motions of the cat are not viewed as having direct combative functions, but instead are a means to develop general movement skills that can then be applied to conflict. And for ease of reference, we'll call this the motion approach. And finally, we have the civilian self-protection view. 
So this is where Catridge viewed as being a record of combative techniques and principles for use in the civilian environment that are directly applicable. Uh, and for ease of reference, we'll call this a civilian self-protection approach. And, you know, as I'm sure you know, for me, when I say bunkai, it's this final approach that I'm referring to. But anyway, you know, that's, there we have our three, uh, three approaches. Now, I accept there are many variations within each approach and that um, within them there's not uniform views, but, but there's broad categories into which we can fit most of the views out there. And I'm sure you'll agree that, you know, these categories will suffice. So which of these three approaches is the right one for the martial artist who seeks functional skills and to understand the nature of kata? Now, when deciding which approach is the right one, there are three main measures we can make use of. We have the historical measure, the practical measure, and the logical measure. Now, as it probably come at no surprise, I hold the view that it's a civilian self-protection approach that's the right one. I feel that's the most practical, and I find that provides the best explanation of kata. I've been publicly arguing the case for this approach for over a decade, and I feel that it is the civilian self-protection approach that has the strongest support historically, practically, and logically. Um, now, see everything I've written, filmed, recorded, taught, and said for the past 10 years for more details on this. Uh, but in this podcast, I want to look at one aspect of the logical case uh, uh, via Occam's razor, and also to establish uh, what we call the burden of proof. So we're just going to look at this one specific aspect and put all the other aspects to, to one side. Um, okay, so what's Occam's Razor? So Occam's Razor is attributed to a 14th century English Franciscan friar called William of Occam, um, who wrote extensively about logic. Now, essentially, Occam's Razor is a principle which recommends selecting the hypothesis that makes the fewest assumptions, but only when the hypothesis is being looked at are equal in all other respects. Occam's Razor is often incorrectly summarised as the simplest explanation is more likely to be the correct one. However, that's a little misleading as a principle is actually about establishing the burden of proof in discussions. Now, by burden of proof, we mean who has the greatest obligation to provide evidence for their position. Uh, as a widely used example of this is, uh, is a thing called Russell's teapot. Now, if I was to say, as Russell did, that there is a teapot orbiting the Earth, it's up to me to provide evidence that that's the case. I can't argue from a position of, well, if you doubt me, then prove there isn't a teapot orbiting the Earth. It's about you know, establishing the burden of proof, and Occam's Razor is useful in this. So what Occam's Razor actually says um, is entities must not be multiplied beyond necessity, or plurality should not be posited without necessity. And we'll expand on those in a minute, but the word Razor is employed because Occam's Razor is about cutting away unnecessary assumptions. You know, entities must not be multiplied beyond necessity, plurality should not be posited without necessity. Um, so Occam's Razor, it's, it's a widely used tool because it's got a very good track record as well. So returning to Kata, for our purposes, Occam's Razor means that the approach to Kata that makes the fewest assumptions is to be the famous one. It also means that all approaches need to explain why they make the assumptions that they do, um, why those assumptions are necessary. Uh, the burden of proof would therefore fall on the approaches making the most unnecessary assumptions. So to keep things as simple as possible, uh, we, we can paraphrase all this like this, okay? The approach to kata that makes the least assumptions should be taken to be the best approach. Hence the burden of proof would be on the other approaches to explain why their assumptions are needed to explain kata. So if we just recap that, the approach to kata that makes the least assumptions should be taken to be the best approach. That's Occam's razor. And the burden of proof would be on the other 
uh, approaches to explain why the assumptions they make are needed to explain kata. If those assumptions aren't needed, then obviously you know that that uh, that theory is not to be the favoured one. So when I was thinking about how to structure this podcast, I thought it would be a good idea to compare some conflicting examples uh, of uh, kata explanation using Occam's razor. Now, as soon as I thought of the word razor, the motion that immediately jumped to mind was the was the jump in Pinan Godan or Hian Godan in Shotokan. Um, and this motion is often explained as a leap over an attack to the legs with a bow or a katana. Hence the title of this podcast, Occam's Hurdled Katana. Now, if you think back to earlier in the podcast, I said that essentially Occam's razor is a principle which uh, basically recommends selecting the hypothesis that makes the fewest assumptions, but only when those hypotheses are equal in all other respects. Now, that's, it's that equal in other respects that I'd briefly like to explore now. It's my view that the three competing uh, categories of cutter explanation, block kick punch, motion and civilian self-protection, are far from equal. I'm going to totally leave aside all the historical and practical strengths and weaknesses of each because I want to concentrate purely on logic and the burden of proof in this podcast. Um, and because we've discussed those things extensively in other podcasts. While I believe the civilian self-protection approach is strongest both historically and practically, for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to assume that they're all equal in those regards so we can discuss things purely from a logical position. Um, the approaches are still not equal, though, because it is only the civilian self-protection approach that explains all the data. Uh, to help illustrate this, let's look at the example from, uh, from Pinan Godan. So the motion that we're going to look at is where the head turns, the hand shoots up behind the head as the other arm is pulled across the chest, uh, knuckles up, and then there's a jump where the body turns 180 degrees, and then you land in reverse cat stance, uh, so, although some styles have one knee down, and the arms are crossed in what is often referred to as a lower cross block. Uh, now, the block-kick-punch approach most commonly explains this sequence as a punch, uh, a leap over a low-weapon attack, uh, typically a staff or a katana, followed by uh, a cross-block to stop a kick. Ignoring, as I said we would, the practical problems with this, the approach fails to explain all the data. If the motion is a punch, why is the head turned away? Why is the arm placed across the chest with the knuckles up? You know, why, why not anywhere else? Why is the lower uh, cross block done in reverse cat stance? Why not another stance? Uh, the head turned, the hand position and the stances are all not explained why they need to be the way that they are. Uh, the motion approach has similar problems but on an even bigger scale. Uh, in this approach the whole motion is not explained. Why is any of it the way it is? Why use that set of motions as opposed to any other set of motions? If any motion will do, then why bother to get kata right? And if any motion won't do, then those who hold this approach need to explain why the kata is the way it is. Why that particular motion? Why is that one so beneficial? Those who hold to this approach need to explain why every part of the kata is the way it is. They also need to explain the mechanism by which the motions of the kata, which they have divorced from direct combative function because they say the movements have no bunkai, can later on be reconnected to combative function. If a convincing explanation has been put forward, or even seriously attempted, I've yet to come across it. Um, anyhow, the point is why the kata is uh, the way it is, is not explained. The civilian self-protection approach, specifically my take on it, would, would explain the motion as follows. The rising arm shoots under the enemy's right arm. 
The left arm, which is the one across the chest in the kata, takes hold of the back of the enemy's arm and then twists and pulls the arm in preparation for a throw. Anyone who's done any judo, shoulder throwing, you, you, you recognize that motion straight away. The, the head turn initiates the rotation of the following shoulder throw. So there's a reason for why the head turns there. The 180 degree turn will see the enemy thrown to the floor. The crossed arm position is the same arm position used for an entangled shoulder lock. The natural response to this lock is for the enemy to twist out of it, to try and untwist his shoulder. The jump prevents that by taking the right leg over the enemy and blocking their path. The reverse cast stance puts the, the one thigh against the enemy's back uh, so hence the, and the shin against the front, so hence the trapped and the lock can have full effect. Now, as always, it's hard to describe these things verbally, but, but I hope you get what I mean. And, but uh, my um, DVD, um, the Pinan Hian series, A Complete Fighting System, Volume 2, shows all that in, in, in detail. So if you've got that, you can refer to that. Now, every single part of the motion is explained by, by the self-protection approach. Um, we know why the head is turned, why the arms are why they are, why we've used the stance. Every single bit of it can be explained, and that's not true of the other approaches. Now, you can apply this style of analysis to any kata motion you choose, and consistently, it's the civilian self-protection approach that can explain why every single part of the motion is the way it is. And after all, that's a requirement of that approach. If it can't explain every single motion, then it's not deemed, uh, every single part of the motion, it's not deemed valid. But the block-kick-punch approach and the motion approach cannot explain why every single part of the kata is the way it is and not some other way. So Occam's razor, if we've been strict about this, can't really be applied because the three competing hypotheses are not equal, as only one of them can explain the data and, and why the cutter is the way it is and not some other way. However, for the purpose of this podcast, I, I'm going to ignore all that and pretend for now that these huge gaps in explanation don't, don't exist. Although only civilian self-protection meets the entry requirements, being the only one to explain the data, I'd now like to move on and apply Occam's razor to the three competing approaches using the same example. You'll recall that earlier we said that to keep things as simple as possible, uh, we would apply Occam's razor to Kata by saying the approach that makes the least assumptions should be taken to be the best approach. Hence the burden of proof would be on the other approaches to explain why their assumptions are needed to explain Kata. So let's look at the assumptions each approach makes. The block-kick-punch approach makes the assumption that you'll be attacked by three people in a specific manner and sequence. For it to work, you need to hit one opponent in the face without looking. Then immediately after, a katana-wielding opponent needs to attack you from your left with a low cut. Any other attack out of an infinite number of possibilities would render the sequence invalid. There is then the assumption that the sword-wielding opponent will stop their attack as no further attempt is made to neutralize them. There then needs to be a low kick which is delivered to your assumed pace of landing exactly as you land in order to make the sequence work. And again, anything other than that specific motion out of an infinite possible number will render the whole sequence invalid. Without very specific assumptions about how and when enemies will act, the whole sequence cannot be said to explain um, the, the kata. And, and and that's leaving aside all the things that are seemingly done for no reason, you know, the head turn, the hand across the chest, and so on, and all the obvious practical failings. But the, the odds of this sequence actually happening in the right time and place, it's just astronomical. 
No, I should probably say here that there'll be some who think I'm presenting a straw man argument, uh, which is when you misrepresent a, a, a different position to make it seem like a very weak and hence an easily defeated position. Now, while this is a very weak position, it's nevertheless a position that is legitimately put forward by innumerable karate books and instructors who subscribe to the block-kick-punch approach. The approach is literally as weak as presented, uh, as we've seen, as we shall see. So uh, let's now look at the uh, the motion approach. Um, the big problem here is that the process by which supposedly non-combative motions of kata become applicable in combat has never been identified. The field attempts to do so normally employ the argument that it's about principles, not techniques. Now, as anyone who's familiar with my material will know, I'm also a great believer in principles over techniques. The crucial difference is that I say the methods of the kata are directly combative. Um, it's therefore simple to see how the combative techniques of the kata will obviously be based on combative principles, and how the study of those combative techniques can lead to an understanding of combative principles. It's simple. What's much harder to grasp is how non-combative techniques, because that's what those who subscribe to this approach say that the movements in the kata are, so how can non-combative techniques ever be based on combative principles? And how can studying non-combative motions uh, lead to combative skill? It's simply not possible. The big assumption is therefore that the supposedly non-combative motions of kata can lead to combative skill through an unidentified and unexplained process. This process has never been explained or identified and is often argued from a position of faith as opposed to logic. I.e., you know, if you have faith and stick with the process, it will eventually become clear. Uh, this doesn't really hold water though, and we'll discuss why in a moment. In the interest of thoroughly exploring the topic, I should say here that the motion approach is largely based on modern revisionism in response to the civilian protection approach to bunkai. While the view that kata is not about bunkai direct application but motion is now widely prevalent in certain groups, those same groups were not saying that before practical bunkai became widely practiced. It was a block-kick-punch approach that was subscribed to in those groups. Now a simple look at what the most senior instructors in those groups and styles were presenting in their books and videos 15 to 20 years ago will confirm that. Those same groups that now say, you know, in our approach to kata we don't have bunkai and it's all about motion, need to remember that their most senior instructors that head their groups were not saying that until comparatively recently. Look at their material and you'll see you know, kata being explained as karateka versus karateka, kicks, blocks and punches. And no mention that kata was anything other than what they were presenting. As the civilian self-protection approach to kata grew in popularity, and it has become increasingly obvious to all that the block-kick-punch approach is seriously deficient, people start to ask, well, you know, why don't we do that? Why don't we do bunkai? And, and why are these methods that we're practicing not workable in real situations? Those that don't subscribe to the civilian self-protection approach, you know, have you know three ways to address those questions. You know, the first one is you know they can adopt the civilian self-protection approach, and you know plenty of people have done that. The second one is to ignore it completely and can carry on with the block-kick punch, uh, you know, regardless. And there's plenty have done that too. And the third option would be to say that neither civilian self-protection or the block-kick punch approach is valid, and it, in the absence of a valid alternative, plump from the notion that kata is all about motion. Now, the motion approach has the seeming advantage of not having to stick with the obviously flawed block-kick-punch approach, but also of not having to accept the civilian self-protection approach to bunkai and the learning curve associated with it. 
It also protects the ego from having to admit there may be a side to karate that they have yet to explore and understand very little about. Um, it's also worth saying that I think the motion approach is a temporary holding position that will eventually die away. People will either switch to the civilian self-protection approach, and we see a lot of that happening, or, after accepting that the motion approach really doesn't have any validity, they will abandon kata altogether. In fact, you can see the beginnings of that already, because the groups that are most strongly tied to the motion approach are now frequently remarking that kata is not really that important. Um, which is a huge shame, I feel, because embracing it in the right context can bring so much. As we've discussed, the main failing with the motion approach is that the process for how it develops combative skill has never been explained. It's a matter of faith, where the, you know, the highly skilled practitioners of the style are pointed to as proof. Uh, the trouble with that is, no matter how superbly skilled the practitioner, there is no proof that their approach to kata had anything to do with developing that skill. We have seen that the block-kick-punch approach needs to make impossible assumptions about the unpredictable actions of their enemies. The motion approach is even worse because it makes a massive assumption Kata will develop combative skill through an unidentified and unexplained process. Now let's contrast them with the civilian self-protection approach. When we look at how the civilian self-protection approach explains the motion in Pinan Godan, no assumptions about the enemy are made. They are thrown and locked. They are not required to do anything to make the technique work. Um, it makes infinitely fewer assumptions than the block-kick-punch approach, and hence, according to Occam's razor, the civilian self-protection approach should be the preferred hypothesis. The motion approach is assumed to develop combative skill through an unidentified process. It's very easy to see how the civilian protection uh, approach develops combative skill, because it's through the practice of combative methods. We can also look at the principles employed in these methods, uh, breaking balance, leverage, exploiting weaknesses of the human body and so on, and expand our study beyond the specific examples in the kata to look at the underlying principles. There is no assumed process, but a directly simple, demonstrable one. On this basis, Occam's razor would again have the civilian self-protection approach as the preferred hypothesis. Although I believe otherwise, for the sake of argument, let's assume that the unidentified process supposedly employed in the motion approach actually works. If you practice kata for a long time, it will somehow lead to the development of combative skill. Now, Occam also wrote about the principle of economy, which basically states, it is pointless to do with more that which can be done with fewer. The civilian self-protection approach starts to develop combative skill immediately through the practice of directly applicable combative methods. The motion approach is said to develop combative skill after time. But even if it does, and, and it doesn't, but even if it does, the civilian self-protection approach should still be the preferred hypothesis via Occam's principle of economy because it develops combative skill with less. You are learning to deal with uh, violence immediately and directly through a readily identifiable process. Whichever way you look at it, and however you stretch the alternative approaches, the civilian self-protection approach is logically the hypothesis to favour. The bottom line is that the civilian self-protection approach works and the other approaches don't. However, what I hope this discussion has shown, that even when we put practicality aside, the other approaches cannot explain the nature of kata, uh, and the need to make many improbable or unidentifiable assumptions. Under Occam's razor, the civilian self-protection approach is the favoured one, and therefore the burden of proof lies with those who hold other views. The civilian self-protection approach can explain every single part of the kata. It makes no improbable assumptions. 
it does not rely on improbable or unidentified processes, and it develops combative skill from day one. If people believe that other approaches are more valid, then the burden of proof lies with them. Those who truly believe in block-kick-punch need to explain all the elements they currently ignore. If the motion is in pin and go and is really a punch, then explain why they turn away from the target when they deliver the punch. Now, I'm genuinely interested why anyone would think it's better to do that than to look at the target. You know, and please put forward your case because I'm all ears. Uh, but that's not enough. They also need to explain why every part of the kata is the way it is and not some other way. They also need to explain why their seemingly improbable scenarios are in fact better explanations than the direct and obvious explanations put forward by the civilian self-protection approach. Those who truly believe in the motion approach need to explain the process whereby supposedly non-combative motions can develop combative skill. Now that seems like an impossible ask to me, but having boldly made their claims, I want them to back it up with solid explanations. They need to show how the motion approach can develop combative skill quicker and more effectively and efficiently than the civilian self-protection approach, if it's to be the preferred uh, uh, hypothesis. They also need to explain why every single part of the kata is the way it is and not some other way. Why that motion and not some other motion? Why is it specifically like that? And this needs to be done for every single movement in the, the kata being uh, practiced and examined. Now that may seem like a tall order, but the civilian self-protection uh, approach can explain and does explain why every move in the cutter is the way it is. You know, I've done that on DVDs for you know, pinhand cutters and hanshi and everything else. You know, every single part of the cutter needs to be the way it is for it to work. If you look at it from a motion perspective, why does it need to be that way? You need to explain that. Um, so if the motion approach is to be considered a valid alternative to the civilian self-protection approach, it needs to be able to do the same. It needs to be able to explain why the cutter is the way it is. We need to see the process explained and every detail of any given cutter explained in accordance with it. My, myself and those like me have done that in our books, our DVDs, our podcasts, our articles on our websites and so on. Where is the material that puts forward all the details of the motion approach and that logically explains its effectiveness and why it should be the favoured approach? Now, I genuinely want to read that because I think it'll, it'll be good for karate and it'll be good for kata. Now, now, this brings me to my reason for producing this podcast. I mean, those who subscribed to the civilian self-protection approach have thoroughly explained our views and put forward the case for our approach. Um, and this is something we should continue to work hard to do because I believe it is through our collective efforts that karate has a you know a strong a strong future. But you know, while we work hard to further explore the kata and its bunkai for the benefit of those that share our approach, uh, we need to remember that when people challenge that that approach, that the burden of proof does not lie with us. By any measure you choose to use, the burden of proof lies with those who hold alternative views. The civilian self-protection approach is simple, it works, and there's no need for unexplained processes or massive assumptions. The block-kick-punch approach and the motion approaches simply can't say that. Occam's razor therefore says that the civilian self-protection approach should be the preferred one. The civilian self-protection approach is the logically preferred hypothesis, and hence it should be the hypothesis adopted by all those who approach uh, Kata logically. Now, if people believe otherwise, it's up to them to come forward with convincing answers to the questions asked in this podcast. If they can't do that, um, and, and they still want to hold on to their, um, the approach that they have, then their reasons for holding on to it are not logical. 
there'll be things like the too invested to change, the dislike, the idea of there's something they don't know having validity, you know, it's their ego coming up, or the uh, kowtowing to authority, you know, master X says so and that's good enough for me and so on. But the burden of proof points firmly one way. Although it's easy to do, it's not up to us to, to prove those who subscribe to the block, kick, punch approach or motion approaches wrong. It's up to them to prove themselves right. I genuinely look forward to seeing any attempts at doing so as it will move the discussion along. You know, however, I won't be holding my breath on the basis that none have been forthcoming so far. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, I'm totally okay with people choosing an approach based on personal preference. And if people prefer uh, block, kick, punch or motion as personal preference, then more power to them. That's great. However, when claims are made about which is functionally the best approach, the discussion moves away from personal opinion and they need to thoroughly explain their position in order to enter the discussion. Simply saying, because it is, or because Master X said, are not logically tenable positions. To have a meaningful discussion, all competing approaches need to be thoroughly explained. Those who subscribe to the civilian self-protection approach have done that. Subscribers to the other approaches, to date, have not explained their approach enough for it to be meaningfully discussed. For those who subscribe to the civilian self-protection approach, our efforts should be 100% focused on advancing ourselves and that approach. It's not our job to convince those who disagree about the merits of what we do. That's a waste of our time because we're so far ahead on all fronts. They need to catch up to be part of the discussion. When they have put forward their approach in as much detail as we have, and when their theory can explain all the data and can be shown to work as well as ours does, then, at that point, the discussion will be worthwhile. Until then, we should leave them behind and get on with shaping Karate's future. We bunk-eye stroke civilian self-protection approach types need to remember that we are the ones in the strongest, most logical position. We need to understand that the burden of proof is not ours. And remember that the discussion has moved on and it's up to those who choose to stick to block, kick, punch and the motion approaches to explain their position in as much detail as we have and show it can work every bit as well. We're way ahead and it's not up to us to slow down or look back. If subscribers to the block, kick, punch approach or motion approaches want to be part of Karate's future, they need to catch up if they're to avoid being cut away by Occam's ever-sharp razor. enjoyed that and, and found it of, uh, of value. I mean, the central point is this. Th those that hold to block, kick, punch and, and the motion approach, um, in order to get their process to work, inverted commas, need to rely on massive assumptions, on unidentified processes, on things that can't be readily demonstrated. And seeing as the civilian self-protection approach is simple, direct, the process is very easy to follow, it can thoroughly explain the kata, and it doesn't need to make any assumptions. You can see the whole process from start to end. Then, then, then logically, that's the, 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 the approach that should be, uh, should be chosen. Um, so if, for those that hold to the other approaches, what they need to do, and I hope this podcast has helped them maybe think about this, is they need to come and put forwards the alternative. They, they need to be writing their books to explain why their approach is, is the best way forwards. You know, doing the podcast, doing the articles and everything else, the need to catch up. 
Uh, and for me, you know, I want to see that. If there's valid uh, alternatives out there and other ways of looking at it, I want to see the evidence. And I'm thoroughly prepared to, you know, change my views if that evidence is uh, is strong enough and is forthcoming. So, um, and for those of us that hold to the civilian self-protection approach, I hope this podcast has explained that, you know, the burden of proof isn't on us. You know, uh, I think sometimes there's too much uh, about... Uh, I don't, you know, almost like evangelizing it, you know, and we don't need to do that. You know, I mean, it, what we need to be concentrating on is working on our approach for us. Um, it's, it's not our job to kind of convince others of the validity of what we do. Um, it's up for them to in- convince us about the validity of what they do, because at the moment, I say, we're just so far ahead of the, ahead of the game. So anyway, I hope that podcast was useful to you, no matter which side of the fence that you, uh, you sit on. Uh, now I'd like to move on to this month's uh, listeners' questions. Thanks to everyone who submitted uh, questions for this section. Uh, I asked for questions via uh, Twitter and Facebook and got loads of really good ones. Uh, Some of them uh, require a a bit more uh, depth uh, to explore than we can give them in this section. Um, So what I've done is I've put those to one side and we'll maybe use those as topics for the kind of main part of uh, future podcasts. But uh, hopefully these questions we can answer, you know, Maybe not fully, but relatively quickly, and give you some uh, some ideas and uh, my thoughts on on some of them. So the first one we got was from Twitter, which was uh, from Matt Sylvester, a good friend of mine, Matt, and he asked, um, uh, "Why does karate not cover the mental aspects and skill sets required for a self protection?" And following on from that, how do you build effective soft skills into an already full lesson plan? So I know this is something that Matt's involved with, so he's kind of asking the question rhetorically, really, just to, to get us discussing it. But um, so look, look at the first part. You know, why, why does karate not cover the mental aspect and skill sets required for effective uh, self protection? Well, my, my view is that, again, it depends what you define as karate. It should. <laughs> uh, if it doesn't, I would say it's somehow deficient. And I think historically, if we look back at what the old masters said about things like, you know, like like awareness and avoidance and all those kind of soft skills. Um, that's referenced, you know, the, 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 the importance of awareness, of avoiding fights, of, of, of effectively escaping, um, of living your lifestyle in such a way that doesn't bring you into conflict. They covered all of that. So it did include them but maybe not at the level that they've evolved to in modern practice. The, the modern sciences and the amount of data we've got and the researchers have looked at this, it's just, you know, it's fantastic. There's just so much really good information out there on these soft skills. And for those that don't know what we mean by soft skills and hard skills, those who are in the self-protection fields probably do, but some of you may not. The hard skills are the physical confrontation skills, you know, the, the, the striking, the hitting, the escaping, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the soft skills are more the ones that avoid getting into that situation in the first place, okay, before you have to rely on physical abilities. Those soft skills to me, if you're purporting to teach uh, self-protection or a karate that has relevance to that, should be uh, included, and, and we do include them. Which leads on to Matt's second question: Is you know how do you include it into an already full lesson plan? Well, for my thing, it needs to be fully integrated in what you do. Our very first grading we have it's for red belt, okay, which is for ninth Q. And as part of that, they have to um, they have to answer questions on Cooper's color codes and um, threat awareness pyramids. So we're starting to integrate it right from day one. It's something we regularly discuss in class. Certainly when we're doing any scenario-based drills or anything along them kind of lines, or we're putting something into context, um, it'll be discussed. We have handouts for the uh, the law and the legal side of things, and that's discussed. Uh, for every grading, we have a knowledge test, which means that they either have to write papers or answer questions 
things or give talks on and that covers all the soft skills side of stuff as well they need to be able to present that now instructors I would say we probably need to know it in greater detail than our students do so when we learn this stuff you know and we're refining this stuff it's often you know sit down in a class and you know overhead projectors and flip charts and everything else to make sure we fully understand it you know I don't really think that's appropriate in your, in your standard kind of karate class or necessary because I don't think you need to separate it out I think it should be an integrated part of, of what you do so it's not an academic understanding of it but it's something that just flows through every single form of practice um, but it, it, again it's a just wanted to kind of touch on that one because it fits nicely with what we talked about last month in uh, the Marshall Map uh, audiobook. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that's one we should maybe return to in future. But for me, you know, I think it should be part of karate, especially if you're claiming that it's got relevance to effective self-protection and it needs to be fully integrated into what you do, not kind of just wedged off to one side, but part of everyday day, day practice, you know. And again, if you come to our dojo, there won't be a session that goes by where those soft skills aren't discussed at some point, whether it's kind of directly or in relevance to an actual drill, and they do get tested on their understanding of it when it comes to, uh, to gradings. Okay, the next question we've got, this came from uh, Facebook, and um, there's kind of two that are related, really, so I'll, I'll, I'll do them both. So, Neil Webster asked, um, you know, could we discuss uh, flexibility uh, and power? What he was basically saying is, you know, um, when we work out and we try and kick that little bit higher, then it's quite common for people to lose form or lose power. So, how do we keep them? You know, how, how do we develop them? And uh, uh, Carlos, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Rojas, um, he said, uh, he said, you know, I supports that question and um, he understands that high kicks are not really necessary for real fighting but as you know for competition karate they are and he'd love to be able to master those kicks to the head and you know how do we go about doing that so generally the point is high kicking now, now for me I do practice high kicking we do do it in the dojo because it's part of the fighting side of what we do it can be useful for the dueling uh, we would never ever recommend kicking high for the self-protection side of what we do but for the gameplay and the interchange and the fighting it can work um, because you know, people don't expect this um, also I think one of the things with kicking high is that it takes um, a higher degree of skill to be able to do that I do believe you know that it's an old argument but it's true that those that can kick high generally kick lower much much better because the the quality of the technique the explosiveness of the muscles the the looseness and the flexibility are all developed more through kicking high because kicking high is naturally more demanding it's like if you lift a bigger weight you become stronger so if you're trying to develop speed and and, and power and great technique at height you know it stretches the technique further um, and, and your abilities get developed further now, probably the best example of this I can think of is Steve Williams who you know is my partner in the uh, the extreme impact side of things if you've seen any of those downloads you'll be well familiar with with Steve now Steve I've no doubt whatsoever because I've held the pads for him if that guy put his foot into the side of your face which he could do easily because he's a great great kicker right if he could do that you know it'd destroy your face there wouldn't be anything left of the head I'm absolutely convinced of that because um, I know what damage he can do to pads and things you know in training he's broken people's ribs through kick shields when I hold the pad for him for a low kick I can take about one right and that's through the kick shield it goes right through I can feel it in my bone you know it, it's just massive power but he does practice a lot of high kicking so he's developed that flexibility and that explosiveness and that good uh, good form so because obviously when you do lift the leg high then some of the energy is used in lifting the leg up there in the first place so in order to kind of make sure that minimum amount of it is lost then you need very good technique you need to be very flexible and you need to be very dynamic so in terms of how you, know, how you develop that 
my suggestion would be, you know, stretch, you know, make sure that your stretching's done, make sure your flexibility's there. And don't, you know, if you're a good leg height kicker, then start trying to kick kind of, you know, middle level, you know, don't kind of jump straight to head height. And just work on it, develop it, make sure you develop those um, strong techniques. And again, for me, not really necessary for the practical side of things, but a great way to develop your overall kicking ability. And, and you know, let's be honest as well, kicking high is lots of fun, and there's nothing wrong with doing things uh, just because it's fun. So I hope for Neil and Carlos that you know gives some idea of my thinking on that. Uh, the next question is from uh, Dave Moore, and he said, Could you discuss your thoughts on a club having a small amount of kata rather than loads, which would allow the student to explore the full benefits of their club's chosen kata, and if there are any pitfalls in this approach? It's something that's intrigued me for a while, and it would benefit me uh, would it benefit me to know less but in more depth. Now, for me, I, I was brought up on kind of 15 kata, up to third dan, and where nine were learnt up to first dan. In my teaching now, we have 10 kata, all right, uh, and that's up to fourth dan. Uh, by the time a student reaches his first down, then they properly know uh, the Pinan series and Naihanshi. And they'll know Kashanku too, but they haven't really kind of explored that in, in full depth yet. So there's kind of six kata that they know in, in depth, and they're all fairly short kata as well, of course. Um, now, where this slower process and fewer uh, kata, where this works for us, I found, is you get better quality kata. That's the first benefit. So, for example, when our um, ninth Q students start learning Pinan Shodan, they only learn the first half of it. They don't learn the full kata. So that means the time in training we spend on kata is, is focused on half of it rather than all of it. So the, the work the first half twice as much, if you like. Um, so the result is that first half tends to get to a much higher standard than it would have been if we'd been learning the full kata. Then for the next grade, they'll learn the second half of the kata to put it all together. Again, the advantage is the first half is already of a very high standard. So, so again, what we found is the quality of the kata goes up. You know, markedly goes up when you're learning fewer kata over a slower period of time. The other big point, of course, is no point of learning kata just for the sake of learning them. And as well as teaching the first half of the kata, we also teach all the bunkai drills associated with the kata, the first half of it, our set bunkai drills. So the student not only understands the kata itself, uh, they understand the applications of the kata, and then they're able to take that into the sparring drills and pad work drills and everything else that we do. So we're not superficially learning them, we're learning them in greater depth and we end up with higher quality. Um, so, so to me, it's a good way of doing it. Now one pitfall, I guess you could argue, is that because you're doing fewer kata, then you're losing some. You're gaining a lot more from the ones that you had, but you're losing some. So from the historical continuity of information point of view, you could argue that, okay, you know, so we've knocked the number down and those cutters that we were practicing before then that are now on the, you know, we still do them every now and again, but they're on their edges really. They're optional cutters for higher grades. And because they're pushed to one side a little bit, well, eventually there's a good chance they might get lost and your future generations haven't got them. So that, that could be argued as one pitfall. But for me, I'd rather my students and their students and their students' students had the knowledge within the kata and had it in great depth rather than just superficially understanding lots. So I, I don't really see that as a pitfall. The only other pitfall in inverted commas that you can have is, uh, so my students, by the time they get the first down, for example, um, the, you know, the Pinans, the Nonahanshi, uh, they're the ones that they know and they know in great depth. Typically, you know, for the style that I came from, by the time you first down, the student will know those forms, they'll know Kashanku, they'll know Sishan, and they'll know Chinto. So what can happen is you can have a first down and another first down, if you like, from outside our group, 
uh, and on, on paper at least, it looks like, okay, my guys don't know as many kata as the other guys do. My, my point would be that the guys who've learnt the kata superficially don't really know them. What they do is they know the external outside of it. They've never learned to use them. They've never learned to, to, to make use of them. They don't know the information within them. So I don't really see that as a, as a, as a negative. So for me, I, no, I think there's a lot of benefit in doing that. The less kata you do, but the more depth you do them, the, the more benefit you get out, get out of it. You know? and, and the fact learning lots and lots of kata, we need to remember that only really kind of started to become fashionable, if you like, when the practice of bunkai started to drop off. So you've got to fill training time with something, haven't you? Okay? So if you're not working on the practical applications of some kata, you may as well fill it with a superficial understanding of other kata. Um, now that I feel that the majority of people are wanting to go um, back a step in order to go forward, forwards if you like and get into the applications and to fully understand it I see lots and lots of people dropping the number of kata down at the practice but practicing those kata in uh, in far greater depth um, again that's another one that, that we could really do with exploring in a, a lot of detail in a future podcast as well but I hope again I hope that's of some interest to, to Dave and everyone listening now the next one we've got kind of two related questions so I'll, I'll read them both out so one's from Christopher Marshall and he says, uh, what are your thoughts on weapons cutters and how do they fit with your thoughts on Bunkai? Uh, okay, and we'll come back to that one in a second. And a related question from, uh, from Don uh, uh, Burnell. He said, could you give your thoughts on implementing the use of practical defense weapons into the Bunkai of the, the Heian system? He says, for example, I did a short video with the Kubotan using a, sec- a section from the Heian Yodan. And they said, not to be confused with the early request for questions on the, the weapons cutters, you know. So I think those two fit together quite nicely. So as regards to Chris's question, what are your thoughts on weapons cutters and how do they fit with your thoughts on bunkai? It's really easy for me to answer because I don't do any tri- traditional weapons cutter. <laughs> uh, the reason uh, I don't do them is because I, I, I'm a pragmatist. For, for, for me, what I'm interested in is what can work for me today. And although, you know, I've done classical weapons, I spent years learning, um, you know, the, the Japanese sword and I've done some other little bits and pieces. Um, they're not really practical and I can do them for the enjoyment of them, but I can only do them for so long and then, okay, okay, I, I want to spend my training time on something else so that they kind of get dropped by the wayside. So I don't do any traditional weapons cutter. And the reason for that is, well, they're not practical. One is you wouldn't use Sai and Tom for anyway, you know, in, in a modern situation. Uh, and the other one is, you know, I, I live in the UK. Uh, and I'm told that with the exception of Japan, the UK has the strictest weapon laws of anywhere in the world, you know. Um, we don't, I can't carry weapons. It's illegal for me to carry weapons. So it's not practical in that regard. So um, as to how these weapons can't fit with my thoughts on Bunkai, well, they just don't. It's just not something I, I consider. Maybe, you know, someone who uh, knows more about weapons can't can interest that. But for me, it's not something I'm really interested in and, and can't hence comment. And then you've got Don's question where he was saying, okay, you know, same kind of idea, really, using the cutters that we use empty hand, could we make use of improvised weapon? Well, it may surprise people outside the UK to know that the Kabotan is an illegal weapon in the UK. It's on the offensive weapons list. You can't carry it. <laughs> uh, there has been examples. There was a celebrity over here recently got caught with one and got prosecuted over it. Um, I say, very strict weapons laws over here. So would I spend time learning to use the Kabotan? Well, no, I wouldn't because I'm not allowed to carry one. What I might do is make use of uh, improvised weapons. So for UK weapons law, it's okay to, you know, if I got attacked, if I pick up something and use it as a weapon, if I can justify the the use of that, well, that's absolutely fine. But walking around the streets armed is something that we're we're not allowed, uh, allowed to do. 
again, if you take about, if I can get, let, let's all, I, I, whereas I may not use a Kubota and I may use anything else I can get my hand on. So I may use like a flashlight or I may use, you know, a, a mobile phone or whatever, you know. But if I've got something solid in my hand, the actual aim of getting that hand to the target to hit with this improvised weapon, in, in principle, is exactly the same as it would be to get a fist to the target. So I, I'm totally with Don on that. You can make the, the empty-handed movements can easily be adapted for handheld weaponry. Now, for me in the UK, uh, I wouldn't be making use of kabutans. It would be uh, improvised weaponry is what I'd be uh, what I'd be looking at to do that. And I, I, you can do that, and it's something that's well worth uh, uh, well worth practicing. But uh, you know, would I work on a specific weapon with that? Well. No, I would not. But I have done, and it is interesting to do, um, make use of the cutter through improvised weaponry, because the principles are exactly the same. It, it's, it's very easy to um, to do that. Um, so, yeah, so I hope that that's all we kind of got time for. Well, that sounds like one of the kind of Saturday morning kids' TV shows. That's all we've got time for this week. <laughs> that's all we've got time for in this um, uh, section. Uh, but what I'll do next month is uh, same again, just before I'm about to record the podcast. I'll put out a note for questions, and if you have any, then uh, by all means uh, let me know, and um, I'll do my best to, to answer them. Uh, I would appreciate if people wait until I, I, I request, because what I don't want to get into is like have a big long list of questions. And we've got a thing where people ask a question, then they might get an answer two or three months later. I, I like the fact that people ask the question and the podcast is up within a week or so when they've got their answers to it. So uh, that's the way I'd like to go forward. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this section and I hope there's some um, of some of my random musings there are of, uh, of interest to you. brings the whole of this month's podcast uh, to an end uh, thanks very much for uh, for listening in i really i say this every time but you know it's because i really do mean it I, I really do enjoy making the podcasts i find it great fun and uh, obviously there'd be no point in making them unless there was people listening to them so uh, thank you for for listening to them if you do enjoy these podcasts then by all means you know but spread the word on them let your, your club mates and students and instructors and whoever else know about them uh, and if you want more of this of course you know don't forget you know pop along to the website on a regular basis you know it's updated almost daily we've got a really good active forum on there uh, if you want to follow me at uh, twitter which is um uh, you know at ian abernethy spelled i-a-i-n-a-b-e-r-n-e-t-h-y and you can find us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash ian abernethy that's our page so you can like those or follow us on there um subscribe to the newsletters as well of course if you go to the website and if uh, you want you know by all means join the website and start getting involved in the discussions uh, there so you know um you know, it's great that we've got this little community forming so you know you play a part however you want to and be aware that those things are, are always there for you even if you're not taking advantage of them uh, at the moment so thanks again for listening in I hope you have an absolutely superb month and I'll be back uh, very shortly with a new podcast okay take care see you now bye bye